we are going to obviously continue in our study of the Psalms of Ascent that we've been looking at for many, many weeks. Um, just started the second half of it last Wednesday. So, and we're going to jump into Psalm 129 tonight. If you haven't already figured that out and seen it on the screen. Um, and as we do that, what we're going to be doing is what we've been doing in each one of these Wednesday nights. And honestly, each time we open God's word together, we're going to see and hear encouragement from God's word about him. <laughs> Anytime we go to God's word, that's what we're looking for. What does this say about God? Way too many people move real, real quickly in their own personal Bible study or when they're hearing the word taught or preached to thinking, what does this have to do about me? But friends, you understand, I hope and pray, that the more faithfully and thoroughly that we understand who God is, the more accurately we will understand who we are. And we will not understand who we are apart from understanding who God is. So I pray that that would be something that we discover tonight. But what we're going to see is we're going to see what we've seen in all these Psalms is God's encouragement to his redeemed people. And he does that by reminding us over and over again about his greatness. Um, that's what all these Psalms of Ascent have been about. It's the similar thread that runs through them all. We, we've looked at Songs where the, the human author that God used in each one of these, uh, for instance, in Psalm 122, he's seeking help, right? And, and, and he asks the question, where does my help from come from? And the answer is the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. Again, the greatness of our God. Psalm 123 was about the opposition. And in that psalm, the psalmist mentions the contempt and the scorn that is being shown to him by other people. And his answer to that is our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. Again, we're seeing the greatness of our God. Psalm 124 is about facing danger. And it begins with a fascinating Statement: If it had not been for the Lord who is on our side, and then it gives a whole host of things that would have happened if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side. The author just sort of fills in the blanks about all the dangers that could happen if the Lord were not on our side. But ultimately, he says, our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heaven and the earth the greatness of God on display. Psalm 125 is about security. And the statement that resonates in Psalm 125 is, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His what? His people. Once again, the focus of the song that is being sung because that's what these are, is our great God, because you can't get more secure than that. Psalm 126 zeroes in on issues of joy. It says, those who sow in tears shall reap 
with joy. How in the world is that possible? How is sowing in tears ultimately paid off and benefits by reaping with shouts of joy? How is that possible? Psalm 126 says, says the Lord has done great things. Why do great things happen? Because of the Lord. He's the one who does them. Again, our great God. And Psalm 128 that we looked at last week does the same thing. Yes, it talks about life as a sinner in a fallen world is difficult. Trials are the norms, friends. If you hadn't set that as part of your um, rubric in which you view the world, you need to get that solidly in place. Trials are the norm for the Christian. We live in a fallen world and it's difficult. And some of the trials that we go through are self-inflicted. <laughs> and some of the trials that we go through are not. But that doesn't change what Psalm 128 says, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in His ways. Because if you're among one of God's redeemed people, it says you shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Now, I know physically and maybe even emotionally tonight, it may not be well with you. But if you're in Christ, it is well with you. Word of God is proclaiming that truth to us. And that's not because of your circumstance. That's not why it may be well with you. But it's because of the great God that you are in covenant with, in relationship with. What God does in these Psalms of Ascent is He takes the downcast face of His children and He, he cradles our face right in His hand and He lifts our jaw up and He says, look to me. Look up. Look to me. Look to the Lord. Look to your great God, your loving Father. And Psalm 129 continues in that same vein. So let's read it together. Hope you're there by now. You either got your electronic version pulled up or your paper version open. Let's see what this psalm says. Verse 1, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Not too many verses to deal with tonight, but there's a lot there. And if there's a thesis for this particular psalm, I believe is that thesis is that our great God delivers His people from affliction. Very straightforward what this is about. And it's about our great God delivering His people from affli affliction. 
And once again, as it's been mentioned in this series, we know that that's the main point of this psalm because of the way the psalm is structured, the way it's actually crafted in terms of music. Again, this is something that God's people would sing. So it is interesting how this song, this particular one in 129, is structured. In Hebrew writings, there's such a thing that's called chiastic structure. Some of you may have heard that before, but if you're unfamiliar with that term, a chiasm just refers to a helpful way that God used the human author to organize specific verbiage in the actual text. And of course, in the Hebrew language, as we look at it here in the Old Testament. And there's chiastic structure that can be found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not just explicit to the Psalms or explicit to the Old Testament, but chiastic structure can also be found in the New Testament. And it's found in all different genres. History, poetry, with the wisdom literature, um, historical narrative, even the prophetic literature in the Bible, you can find chiastic structure in how the text is actually laid out. And the structure about how the psalm or the passage is composed helps us understand what the author is putting the emphasis on, the human author that God is using, obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And once you know what to look for, spotting the chiastic structure sort of helps us focus on the main point that's being made here. That usually means that the psalm or the passage that we're looking at builds in the first half to the main point, and then the second half also builds to that same main point, but the main point is in the middle of the passage. Let me show you a simple version of the chiastic structure of this psalm. I'm going to spoil it for you right off the bat because I already told you what the main point is and the main point is found in verse 4. Right? Look at verse 4. What does verse 4 says? It says, The Lord is what? Righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. So again, this verse is set up in the middle of the structure of this psalm. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of of the wicked. And if you look at that verse, everything that leads up to it supports that main theme and everything that follows it also supports that main theme. Look at it this way. In verses 1 and 2, there's a double affliction mentioned. We'll look at that in just a second. We'll look at all of this in specificity in just a second. But then down in the second half of verse 8, there's a double blessing that's mentioned. So there's similar themes going on as you build toward the main point. Moving on, in verse 3, there's this plowing imagery that we just read about. But down in verse 6 through the first part of verse 8, there's a reaping imagery that's talked about. We'll talk about how those play out against themselves. And then we get to the main point, verse 4, which is about who God is, the Lord is righteous, and what He's done. He has cut the cords of the wicked. 
Again, there's intentionality in the structure of how God inspired the human author to write in the Hebrew language this chiasm. It helps us understand what the main point is about the psalm. Everything in verses 1 through 3 support that main point. And then everything that follows in verses 5 through the end of 8 also support that main point. And those parallelisms are important as well. There's a parallel between the double affliction in the beginning and the double blessing at the end. There's a parallel between the plowing imagery and the reaping imagery as well. This is all intentional. This symmetry is all intentional. All part of the one who created this amazing text, which is the Lord himself. This is, and then so that you get to the gist, and the gist is who God is and what he's done. Think of it sort of as a sideways triangle where these parts are pointing into the main gist. Same thing here with what follows. It's highlighting what the main point is. Now, do you have to understand chiastic structure to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation? No, you don't. Do you have to understand chiastic structure to follow Jesus well? No, you don't. Do you have to understand it to understand the Bible? No, you don't. But what I want you to do is appreciate the intricate beauty of what God has done in providing His Word to us. It's all intentional. It's all supernaturally inspired. And we often neglect that, right? We take the Word of God for granted. I have probably, between my office and my house, I probably have eight Bibles most of which I don't use. I use mainly one of them. We sort of take the Word of God for, for granted. So with this intentionality, this kind of specificity of what God has done and how He's revealed His Word, I think it's helpful. Next time you and I are tempted to, to I don't know, see a clear command in the Scripture and decide it's not important and it's not to be obeyed, Maybe the Holy Spirit will convict us about the precision that is in this book that God has done. And may the Holy Spirit convict us about what we're not wanting to obey and empower us instead to obey it, right? I mention all of this because chiastic structure is a very non-Western way to compose writing, right? I mean, I look around the room and most of us in here are Western people. And there's a reason that chiastic structure is non-Western because this psalm in particular was written in Middle Eastern culture over a, a, a thousand years before Christ. So if you think about what we normally do today in the West when we tell a story or we teach the Bible, or we write poetry, or we write a song, 
we put the main point either right up front or right at the end. A lot of Bible teachers, myself included, start with the main point right up front. I did that already tonight, here, in this situation. But the whole sermon or Bible study lesson can also lead up to the main point that's given at the end. Kind of like um, Paul Harvey's stories. Anybody in here know who Paul Harvey is? Okay, a lot of people. Some of you don't know who Paul Harvey is. That's okay. Yeah. Um, many of you know I grew up in Texas, and I'm the youngest in my family. But each summer, we went to Colorado for family vacation from Texas. And we would drive, station wagon, we'd all load up, you know, in a caravan with other families. And uh, my dad liked to drive straight through. So that's 16 hours to get from the Dallas area to... Uh, Estes Park, which is where we went. And we didn't have, you know, DVD players. We didn't have <laughs> devices or anything like that. So one of the things that my mom did to help pass the time is she would read to us Paul Harvey books. And, and if you're familiar with Paul Harvey, you know that each of his stories would build and build and build, and you're trying to figure out where's he going with this and what's, what's going to be you know, the big bang at the end. And then he gets to the end, and he tells you the end of the story, and then he says what? Now you know the rest of the story, right? You can do it one of two ways in the West. You can stress the main point right up front, or you can stress the main point right at the end. But... In Hebrew writing, what the writer wants to emphasize is usually in the middle. Don't miss that. might help you in your study with God's Word. So as a result of the structure that's already in this psalm, here's how I would break down this particular psalm. Number one, I think the, what we see in the first couple of verses is the psalmist persecution. The psalmist persecution. So if you're taking notes, that's the first thing on the outline. With most of the Psalms of Ascent, just in general, and the ones that we've looked at here, we don't know who the human author is that the Lord used, and that's true here. Now, some of them we do, but most of them we don't. But that's true that we don't know who the human author is that God used to do 129 here. Um, but in verse 1, look at it with me. The word greatly is used right off the bat. Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. Greatly. And that, is, that word is used to describe the level of affliction that the psalmist has or is currently experiencing. And the Hebrew word that's used there means numerous. It means to a great degree or a, or, a, or a great extent. So think about that. He's saying, greatly they have afflicted me. Many of us have been there. Some of you may be there tonight. You may be in the midst of an affliction that is to such a great extent, everything feels like it's going to crash in on you. And for the psalmist, he's experienced this most of his life. Did you notice that? They afflicted me from what? From my youth. 
So this has been a long struggle he's referring to here. Not something that's, that's just recent. Not something new that's popped up. But a long series of affliction. Not just a one-time thing. It does amaze me when I hear people say the Bible is irrelevant for life today. <laughs> oh, really? This sounds pretty applicable to my life. I don't know about you. But it sounds pretty applicable to me. But notice that this affliction that he's referring to here right off the bat is personal. He says they, and we don't know who they are. We're not told in this psalm who they are. But they afflicted me, he says. A specific circumstance, just something we're not told about. But the affliction is coming from a personal enemy. Um, it's not some natural disaster. It's a relationship. It's personal. It's an enemy that they know. And aren't those the hardest anyway? I mean, goodness, I've lived here for 21 years and I've been through, I think, six hurricanes. <laughs> but that kind of affliction pales in comparison to a wayward child or a marriage that's in trouble or a personal attack from an enemy. It's harder because it's personal. Now at the end of verse one, there's that phrase there, if you'll see it, where he finishes up the statement and then he says what? Let Israel now what? Yeah, let Israel now say. This is, this is a, a sort of a next step of progression. Remember we talked about in the, in the chiastic structure, there's a, there's a double affliction going on here, but there's mentioned at the end a double blessing. But here, when he says, let Israel now say, the psalmist sort of invites the nation of Israel into the conversation to, to restate the affliction with the psalmist keeping the people of God in mind here. Let Israel now say, and what's the statement? Look at it in verse two. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. It's the same statement, but now he's involved more people in the affliction because there's more people being afflicted. He's calling that to our attention, the reader, but he's making the point that it's not just me. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. So what has happened on a personal level also is happening among God's people, Israel at this time. Israel's affliction also began early in life as well, when you think about the formation of a people of God in the Old Testament, right? And the first time um, that we see that come into play is in verse 2 when it's mentioned that Israel is involved as well. You know, right after the, the first of the year, um, in terms of Sunday morning preaching, we're going to shift gears back to the book of Genesis. Remember, we, we, about a year ago or so, we were looking at the book of Genesis. 
And going through the book of Genesis, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, we're going to pick that up again. And we're going to begin in chapter 12. And if you know anything about the book of Genesis, what begins in chapter 12? Abrahamic covenant. That's right. The call of Abraham, who will, who, who is, is when we initially meet him in chapter 12, is Abram, and then becomes Abraham, the patriarch of God's people in the Old Testament. And as you think about the progression of the Old Testament, the Old Testament is a record of trial after trial after trial after trial of God's people, right? They were afflicted. It's a long record of suffering. It's a long record of oppression. Down through the years, Israel has been a picture of humiliation, as Isaiah 51, 23 states. Just think of the affliction of specifically slavery in Egypt for God's people at that time. In fact, that's what the plowing imagery is all about in verse 3. He goes on to verse 3. Look at it with me. There, there's, this is more than likely pointing back to Egypt. Look at what he says in verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my what? Upon my back. They made their long, they made long their furrows. Again, this is probably a reference to the Egyptians' master's whip. But it's an interesting illustration because it's an agrarian metaphor that's being connected to physical brutality. Think about what plowing is for. What is plowing for? What do you want to do eventually? Plant seeds, right? So you can do what? So something would grow. I mean, a plowing metaphor is a positive metaphor. It's a good thing to plow, to plant seeds, and to grow and to reap a harvest. But this plowing referred to here is designed to do the opposite. It's designed to destroy and wound and humiliate. Anybody know who whipped Peter was in U.S. history? Anybody know that story? He was a slave in Louisiana in the 1800s during the Civil War who was beaten and whipped by his master. And uh, it was severe, as was the case in many situations. And even though photography itself was in a very early stage in the early 18 and late 1800s. A photo of his back was taken and it became infamous. It became a, an effective tool actually in the abolitionist movement to end slavery in the U.S., uh, now, I'm not going to show you the photo tonight. You can Google it yourself because it's, it's disturbing. But his back looks like it has been plowed by a plow. Run over multiple times. And I think what the psalmist is doing here is he's hearkening back to Israel's slavery in Egypt when they experienced a similar brutality. This is quite an affliction that they're He's describing here. But not just their slavery in Egypt. I mean, think about the history of the people of God. They're, they're wandering in the wilderness. Their journey into Canaan, the battles for the promised land. 
Um, the, the, the sin-induced cycles of judgment during the time of the judges. The idolatrous kings. The fracturing of a nation into two kingdoms, Judah and Israel. Captivity. Exile. You can go on and on and on and on. And then a period of silence where God does no longer speak through a prophet until a baby is born and his announcement comes. So there is a real affliction that's being highlighted here. But look at the second half of verse 2 because there's a conjunction there that matters greatly particularly in English, not in Hebrew, but... And what is that conjunction? But, or some translations say, yet. So when somebody says, but, or yet, you want to hang on to what they're about to say. Because with all that's happened, both personally for the psalmist and his affliction, and then for the nation and the nation's affliction, there's something important to be said. And what does he say? Yet... They have not, what? Prevailed. prevailed against me. They have not prevailed against me. The word prevailed there is a reference to military, military superiority. Uh, it is, the focus of the word is actually on how the afflicted person is perceiving their affliction, how they feel about their affliction. He says, yet they have not prevailed against me. Now, I can ask two questions that might really drive home the point of this second half little piece of verse 2. One of the questions is, you, well, you tell me, is Israel still alive and kicking today in 2023? Yes. Okay. Let me ask you this. Is the New Testament church still alive and kicking today? Yes. I do agree with Russell and what he said last Wednesday in here about not taking the position that the church has replaced Israel. It has not. Uh, there are still plenty of unfulfilled biblical prophecies to ethnic Israel. Um, we, the New Testament church, and they, ethnic Israel, are two separate entities, but there are parallels in the Word of God between God's people in the Old Testament and the church in the New Testament. And even in an infantile way, we're seeing that here in Psalm 129. Because in the same way that the psalmist speaks of Israel here, having not been prevailed against, the Apostle Paul makes similar statements about the church of the Lord Jesus. I want you to keep your finger right there in Psalm 129. Let's go to Romans 8. I want you to see this because, again, we're looking at the parallels that are built into the passage, but we're also seeing something that is forward-thinking. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. And I'm going to read this, and it's a, it's a, we're going to just look at the back half of Romans 8 because it is all good, all gold, all beautiful, but the whole thing is important for us to understand the symmetry between the Old Testament and what it says about God's covenant people Israel and the New Testament, what it says about God's redeemed people, the church. Verse 18, I hope you're there by now. 
Look at it with me. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Amen? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was not subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirits groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were what? Saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. There's the deliverance, ultimately. What then shall we say to these things? Meaning the current affliction that the church is facing. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies who is to condemn Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Answer? No one shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. They're talking about the same thing. <laughs> One's pointing to the other. The affliction that we see here in Psalm 129 about God's people that they're experiencing points forward to the affliction that the church, God's redeemed people today, will and do experience. As with all things in the Bible, the affliction of this psalmist and the affliction of God's people points us forward to Christ, the deliverer of his people. <laughs> His bride, all who are in Christ. Now, if the song ended right there with just affliction, we wouldn't understand why or how 
No one has prevailed against God's people or against the psalmist as he says it. And that's due, second on your outline, to the Lord's perfection. Remember what we said about verse 4. All that came before it is driving towards this main point. Who God is and what He's done. It's all about the Lord's perfection. First thing He says in verse 4 is the Lord is what? Righteous. Yahweh is the Hebrew word used here for God. And that, of course, like all things in Scripture, is intentional. So why does the psalmist use this particular name of God? Because the name of Yahweh teaches something very specific. It teaches the distinction between God and ourselves. God alone is righteous. He alone is self-existent. He was never created. All different from us in that regard. And in His righteousness, only He can provide complete deliverance. Not other people. Boy, we're blessed in this body of Christ to have brothers and sisters that love the Lord and walk faithfully and and when some are down, others encourage those who are down. And I mean, we're just trying to get us all home safely. Amen? Amen? And it's good to be in a body of Christ that's healthy like that. But friends, it is tempting for you and I to view another person or other people as our Savior. That temptation is very easy. But somebody else can't be your Savior. If you think that, it's idolatry. It's a sin. No mere human being can bear the weight of being your Savior. And people do this all the time. They view another person, maybe their spouse or maybe one of their heroes, and they view that person as one who should fulfill them. And not only is that unfair to the person that you see as your functional Savior, but it won't deliver because they can't. They're not designed to. There's only one human, the God-man, that can be our Savior. I think my wife is pretty fond of me. I think. But she does tell me regularly that I am her second favorite husband. Ladies, you know what that means? Yeah, I know you know that, what that means. Yeah, she's got a better husband, no doubt about it. His name is Jesus. And when she tells me that, she's reminding not only me of her true Savior, but she's reminding herself of her true Savior as well. It doesn't mean she doesn't respect the position of husband that God has given me in her life. It just means she has a, a higher love beyond her love for me. And that's her love for Christ. He's the only one that can truly deliver her. Because she's a hot mess. And she'll tell you the same thing about me. He's the only one that can truly deliver because he's righteous. Which just means that he's just. That he's perfect. He's perfect in all of his ways. He's correct in what he does and how he does it. He's never wrong. Some of us act like we're always correct in what we do. <laughs> but we're not, right? 
My wife and I were doing family worship recently with our youngest son, and we were talking about the holiness of God at the dinner table. And, and what does that mean? That God has a perfect moral character that's flawless. Uh, and, I, and I ask him specifically the question, buddy, are you perfect? And his response was hilarious because there was a long delay as he thought about the question. He understood the question, but boy, he was thinking about it. And eventually he kind of reluctantly said, no, I'm not. So my plan was kind of go around the table. And so I shifted over to my wife and I said, buddy, is mom perfect? And he quickly said, no. <laughs> I mean, he didn't even flinch. <laughs> didn't have to think long about that. <laughs> See, uh, I think I've heard Ray Comfort say this. Sinfulness is like bad breath. It's hard to detect on yourself, but it's real easy to detect when it's somebody else, right? And that's, that's true. Uh, we, we are quick to notice the sin in other people's lives faster, way faster, than we notice our own sin. And we do have a hard time noticing our own sin in our lives. That's why the role of the Word and the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives to convict us, help us to think rightly about the things that we do, the things that we think, the things that we decide, is so crucial. That's why each other of us matter in a local church. Because you see blind spots that I have, which by definition, I don't see. What is a blind spot? But it's something that I don't see. Remember, verse 4 is the main point of this psalm. This is about who God is. He's the righteous one. He's perfect. And it's about what he's done. And what has he done? Look at the second half of verse 4. He has what? Cut the cords of the wicked. Now, for us to understand that phrase, we've got to stay with the plowing metaphor that he had referenced in the verse before. If you cut the cord or the cords that attach the animals to the plow... What does that do to the plow? Yeah, it's useless. It stops it from being effective, does it not? It renders it as completely useless. So the plow is no longer effective in how it was being used back up in verse 3. And that's because somebody else took the scourging on their back. And who was that? Christ Jesus. Boy, there's a lot of Jesus in the Old Testament. And this is good news, friends, because it reminds us that God is incredibly faithful. He keeps His word. And He's not forgotten His people. God has severed the cords of the enemies of the people of God. I'm going to say that again. God has severed the cords of the enemies of God's people. If we are in Christ, we will be hurt in this life. But we will never be harmed. And there's a difference. 
We will be hurt, and we're actually to expect that. But we will not be irreparably harmed in this life. Again, think about what we read in the very last couple of verses of Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's the worst thing possible that the enemies of God can do to us? What's the worst thing that they could do? Kill us. And that, my friends, is a beautiful deliverance. I'm not looking to die tonight. But whenever that happens... It's a glorious thing for those who are in Christ. And that death does not separate from us from his love. It actually consummates us more in his love. He has cut the cords of the wicked. The Hebrew verb there that's used for has cut is a verb that's in perfect tense. Some of you... Uh, grammar or English teachers may have a grin on your face. Has cut. It didn't say he cut. He has cut. Meaning that God has delivered and will continue to deliver his people from affliction. And that deliverance can happen by one of two ways. Honestly, it can, it can be by preserving his people like he has done, but it can also be by punishing his enemies like he has also done and will continue to do. He's got a track record of doing both, and he does both of them now, and he will finally and fully preserve his people one day, and he will finally and fully punish his enemies fully one day in the eschaton to come. So whatever's going on in Gaza right now ain't going to change that. Because God doesn't change. He's perfect. He's righteous. And he's cut the cords of the wicked. Speaking of punishing his enemies, the last part of this psalm, again, supports verse 4, just like the first part of the psalm supported verse 4, the main idea. But the last part of this psalm is an interesting piece. It's the psalmist petition. Petition. In verses 5 through 8, from this point on, what the psalmist does here is he joins the posture that God has towards his enemies. And he begins to pray specifically. And he begins to petition the Lord to act in a manner consistent with God's own character and punish the enemies of God. These are called impeccatory prayers. Some of you may have heard that term before. Uh, and there are several psalms that use imprecatory prayers. And there are other places in the Bible that contain imprecatory prayers. And I want to recommend a good article to you. If you've, never, if you've never thought about the idea of imprecatory prayers, which imprecatory just means curse, but it's, it's different. It's not... Let's put it this way. Israel didn't make 
curses upon other nations. They prayed for God to do that. Because think, think of the, all the idolatrous countries, nations that surrounded them, continually they were at war with, gave them a hard time, even today. <laughs> they knew that dispatching a curse was not something God commanded them to do. It was not their role. But they could ask God to do that because he's sovereign. So if you've never thought about this whole idea of imprecatory prayers, I want to give you a good article that you can, that you can look at it's got lots of scripture in it that will help you think through the matter. Again, if imprecatory prayers are new to you, which is what we're seeing in the rest of this passage in, in 129, you can go to desiringgod.org and just type in, O slay the wicked, which is a different quote from a different psalm. And you can look at that. I think it's a helpful article. I just think it is. It'll help you think about some things that you probably never th have thought before. Because most modern evangelicals don't understand the role of imprecatory prayers in the life of a Christian. They just don't make sense for us today. And most of us wouldn't be comfortable praying for the destruction of, our of the enemies of God. And there's a couple of reasons I think that is. Many folks have a, an inconsistent view of God. Um, I find this way too often, but they, they believe that there's sort of two gods in the Bible. The, 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 the God of the Old Testament who is wrathful and angry and highly ticked off. And then, and, and of course, he's the one that slaughters the Canaanites. But, but in the New Te Testament, there's this kind, loving God that pets sheep and plays with children. Right? And heals people. That's either two gods or it's one God that evidently went through a midlife crisis. Right? In the intertestamental period. But that's not accurate. That argument is one that's being made from someone who has not read the Bible carefully. Because the wrath against sin and grace towards sinner is in the Old Testament and it's in the New Testament. Both of those are in both Testaments. <laughs> so I think that's one reason that many people aren't comfortable with the idea or even understand the whole point to imprecatory prayers. But secondly, many folks have a real low view of sin. <laughs> And so that means they have a messed up view of justice. Friends, our sin is an affront to a holy and righteous God. A lie. Don't, let's don't categorize sin according to the big ones and the little ones. There are, there are some that have massive consequences, and there are some that we think have little consequences. But sin, doesn't matter what sin is an affront to a holy and righteous God. Sin is morally repugnant to God. Why? Because his character is moral perfection. He's righteous, as we've already seen. Our sin is cosmic rebellion. And we're born sinners. And it doesn't take us long to figure out, once we get our way, that we enjoy being a sinner. <laughs> 
We could all take a field trip right down the hall here in the preschool ministry and see lots of little sinners doing sinful things. Doesn't take long. You've had kiddos, you know this. But we get to a particular age and we get happy participating in our own sinfulness, right? Some of us never grow out of that, sadly. And there's a correlation to downplaying our own depravity and downplaying the role of God's justice against sinners. If you don't think sin's a big deal, you're not going to worry about the punishment of sin. But what do sinners deserve? We ask that question quite often around here at McGregor. What do sinners deserve? Hell. Hell. That's what we deserve. God's justice against our sin is good. Probably not going to hear a lot of preachers say that. <laughs> but God's justice against our sin is good because it demonstrates the consistency of the one who is righteous, the one who is perfect. His justice against our sin is right. And that goodness is expressed in his condemnation of sinners in hell. All sin has a price that must be paid. So if we're iffy on things like the consistent character of God in the, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, or if we're if, iffy on human depravity and the justice of God, we will at the very least be uncomfortable praying to God to destroy our enemies. But look at verse 5, because that's what he's saying. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned back. The word shame here means pale. The word itself means pale. Think about that. Pale as in you just got caught red-handed doing what you were doing that is wrong and you're embarrassed by it. The psalmist is praying that God's enemies will be put to shame and turned back backward like a retreating army is turned away and turned backward. And that's interesting to give enemies a chance to retreat because friends, when Christ returns and he wins the battle of Armageddon, there's no retreat. All who are outside of Christ will be wiped out in an instant. All his enemies will be destroyed there's no fight, and the battle is really over before it begins. And it's very much a lopsided victory in Revelation 19, if you want to look at it. Verse 5, may all who hate Zion, Zion, the, the, the mountain upon which Jerusalem sits, may all who hate Zion, who hate the place of God's people, who hate the place where the only Righteous God is worshipped again in the Old Testament. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. But then in verse 6, he begins with a new illustration. Again, go back. Verse 3 was about plowing. And, and verse 6 through the first part of verse 8 is about reaping. And the point there is with this grass on the roof that he's describing here. 
Um, anybody in here besides me still have a roof that needs to be repaired from Irma? Not Irma. I get them all confused. They're all a blur. Ian, thank you very much. Yeah, imagine having a grass roof, having a thatched roof. If you've, if you've traveled internationally, you've seen this in other countries, right? And the point here with this grass on the roof is that the psalmist is praying for God to diminish the harvest of evil people. That's the point he's making. That, that what they reap won't last. See, back in those days, if you had a thatched roof, you would cut tall grass to replenish the grass occasionally on that roof. Now, you're not going to waste a harvest crop like wheat to thatch your roof. You're just going to cut tall grass that can't be used for anything else. And when you cut it and you use it on your roof and you put it up there, it's going to continue to grow because of the rain and sunshine. It grows for a while, but eventually what happens to that grass? It's not green anymore, right? It begins to fade and turns yellow and brown and it dries up because it's no longer attached to the soil. The psalmist is asking God here to make his enemies, not the psalmist's enemies, but God's enemies, to make God's enemies like this grass, ultimately fading away, useless, dead. And by the way, he's not asking, I'll say this again, to be the agent of their death. It's not what the psalmist is asking. The author is not taking on that role but he is asking God to act. See, that's one of the big differences between Christianity and Islam. There are many, but Christianity is not an honor religion. We understand that the sovereign God of the universe can defend himself quite well. We don't need to. We defend the gospel, the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. But we don't defend God's name by assassinating and killing another person. The author here is not taking on that role of assassin, but he's asking God to act consistently how a holy God would act against his enemies. Brothers and sisters, the enemies of God may prosper for a while, but it won't last. The Word of God tells us that. God will call into account every single sin that has ever been committed and he will call it into account and it will be paid for uh, either by Christ in his substitutionary atoning work for all those who repent and trust in him or by the person who committed that sin. Every single sin will be accounted for. We call it forensic righteousness. Sin by sin by sin by sin either called into account of the sinner who committed them or forgiven by the work of Christ on the cross. That'll happen. But sadly, we live in a day where the enemies of God prosper. They're green up on the roof right now. <laughs> but you know what? That's not unique to us. This psalmist obviously saw that the enemies of God prospering in his day, as did other psalmists. We, we read about that in other psalms, as did Job. 
as did Solomon, as did Jeremiah, as did Daniel, as did Malachi. They all ask a similar question. Why do the wicked prosper? God, when will you act? And that question has been asked by better men than me. <laughs> so it's not a new question. And it is a when question, not if. Let's don't be confused by that. Because when, not if, but when God acts to destroy his enemies, they will never see the blessing of the Lord, which is how he ends that, that mention at the end of verse 8, that double blessing. Friends, this whole petition in this final section just reminds you and I that any affliction that you and I face from the enemies of God is only a temporary trial. Paul calls it a light, momentary affliction that is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Charles Spurgeon said of this particular Psalm 129 that it is a mingled hymn of sorrow and strong resolve. Wow. Think about that. Sorrow and strong resolve. That also sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul because in 2 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are to live the Christian life as sorrowful, yet always, what? Rejoicing. It sounds like an oxymoron. I don't mean to question Paul, <laughs> but doesn't that sound like an oxymoron to you? Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing? How can we be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing? Why are the people of God in this hymn mingled with sorrow and yet strong resolve? How can both of these be possible at the same time? Well, it's because of Christ. That's how. He has overcome the grave. Not just his grave, but every grave. He has overcome every grave for those who trust in him. Every person who will turn from their sin and by faith trust in the grace that God has provided in Jesus Christ. You may very well be experiencing an affliction in your life right now, but that affliction does not change one single thing about the grace of God. He will deliver all those who belong to him, his people, the redeemed of God. And brothers and sisters, regardless of what affliction or pain you and or I might be facing right now, the Lord is our deliverer. Verse four, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. God delivers us. He delivers his people from affliction. I'm a big fan of uh, Rich Mullins, the uh, singer. God saved me when I was 13 years old. And not everything in my life immediately changed at the time of my salvation. I'm a big, long work in progress, and so are you. But one of the things that did almost immediately change is what music I began to listen to as a 13-year-old boy. 
And as a 13-year-old boy who was a new Christian, I found Rich Mullins. Um, and I didn't realize at the time how unique Rich was among his fellow artist in Christian music at the time, much less the, a lot of the goofballs that sing Christian music now. Um, so I've loved his music for a long time. And I was thinking the other day, I don't know why I was thinking about this, but I was thinking about heaven. And I sort of made a list of a couple of people that I don't know now here on earth, but I look forward to getting to know in heaven. Um, Hosea is one of those. Can't wait to sit down with him. <laughs> uh, Corey Tinboom is also one of those. Can't wait to meet that dear sister. And Rich Mullins is also on that list. And while it wasn't the last song that he wrote before he died in 97, one of his last songs that he wrote is called Nothing Is Beyond You. And it's a song that's both about Jesus, but it's also a song to Jesus. And I think the song sums up what we've discussed here tonight. I just want to read the lyrics. I'm not going to sing. And I know you'll be blessed by that. But Rich begins the song with a question to Jesus. He says, where could I go? Where could I run? Even if I found the strength to fly. And if I rose on the wings of the dawn and crashed through the corner of the sky. If I sailed past the edge of the sea. Even if I made my bed in hell. Still there you would find me because nothing is beyond you. You stand beyond the reach of our vain imaginations, our misguided piety. The heavens stretch to hold you and deep cries out to deep, singing that nothing is beyond you. Nothing is beyond you. Time cannot contain you. You fill eternity. Sin can never stain you. Death has lost its sting. And I cannot explain the way you came to love me except to say that nothing is beyond you. Nothing is beyond you. If I should shrink back from the light so I can sink into the dark, if I take cover and I close my eyes, and even when you would see my heart and you'd cut through all of my pain and rage, the darkness is not dark to you and night is as bright as day. Nothing is beyond you. You stand beyond the reach of our vain imaginations and our misguided piety. The heavens stretch to hold you and deep cries out to deep, singing that nothing is beyond you. Nothing is beyond you. And time cannot contain you. You fill eternity. Sin can never stain you. And death has lost its sting. And I cannot explain the way you came to love me except to say, that nothing is beyond you. Nothing is beyond you.